One of the most important documentaries of the year is Navalny, which tells the story of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia, who was poisoned by trained killers in August of 2020. The film was directed by Daniel Rohr. It has been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And Daniel joins us now, along with one of the team of investigators that actually broke the story, Christo Grosev, from the investigative team known as Bellingcat. Uh, Daniel, Christoph, thank you so much for doing this, and congratulations on the movie. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Alexei Navalny, a hero, has devoted his life to fighting the corruption in the Russian government and specifically Vladimir Putin. Let's talk about his rise as a political leader. What what about him has galvanized such support among so many Russian people? Well, I think um, it's kind of his public rise to this prominence, which started from a blogger. He was just one of the bravest bloggers back in about 15 years ago. And he was talking about everyday things, people that other media, professional media, didn't really address in those times including street crime is including political corruption and um, he kind of made a, a name for himself as somebody who's fiercely independent wouldn't take instructions mm, everybody was afraid of him everybody even tried to instrumentalize him at the time even the political powers that be were trying to use him by feeding him um, information about their enemies but he was quick enough to figure that out and didn't didn't actually play along but what really happened, what changed um, for him was the team that he was able to gather around him. Um, we're talking about at the peak of his activist career, when he decided to run for president, he set up 88 regional offices of his anti-corruption fund. This became essentially the only and the largest opposition political movement and party in Russia. And anybody who wanted to be at all involved with politics, and especially with non-Kremlin politics, uh, flocked to him. So he got these thousands and thousands of super energetic young people and he used their tools. He learned how to use Instagram, how to use TikTok, and he spoke to the young people. So I think that's what made him a completely different type of po po politician, much closer to the American type of politician than to anything Russia had seen before. How was he able to be on social media in a country that doesn't allow that, really? I mean, how, how was he able to to have a YouTube channel, like for as long as he did? Well, until Russia, until the Kremlin decided to convert Russia into North Korea 2.0, which happened about two years ago, um, Putin realized that he needs to allow for a modicum of, of uh, pluralism and democracy in the country. Otherwise, he would create a uh, sort of a, a pressure cooker. Um, and that was the smart Putin. And, and he, something happened in his head and he forgot about that formula that he had. So now we're in the period of the crazy Putin where he locked all of that in. And that's why before that you could see opposition, uh, voices, opposition figures. Of course, when they became too dangerous, Putin sent the people to kill them. Right. But this was supposed to be in secret. This was supposed to be deniable. And well, the rest is history made by this guy here. Daniel, because we shot it on, on film. <laughs> we sure did. So, Daniel, when did you, as a filmmaker, dive into this story? At what point in the narrative did you start shooting? 
well, so often making documentaries is the art of being in the right place at the right time. And this film really embodies that notion. Christo and I and, and our, one of our colleagues were working on a completely different story. We were in Kiev working on a film there. It wasn't going well. And so we found ourselves in October of 2020 in Vienna. I was trying to figure out if I'd go back to Canada, where I'm from, or if we would stay and try and go back to Ukraine nothing was certain and anything was possible. And that's when Crystal walked in one day and, and told us that he was working on a new investigation, something that we had not been previously privy to, which was the investigation into who poisoned Alexei Navalny. And immediately I understood that this had uh, the the makings of an extraordinary uh, nonfiction film. And uh, because of Christo and his professional pedigree and his investigative pedigree, we were able to ride on his coattails to go and meet with Navalny and his staff and essentially pitch them on a film project. Navalny had been out of a coma for what, four weeks, maybe? Yeah, four when, weeks. when we were, were first met with him, he was... Um, he was in rehab, essentially, in this sleepy little town, enjoying the fresh air and learning how to um, reorient his fine motor skills. Um, and he was very, very keen on hearing what Christo had to say and, and, and receptive to the pitch that I had for him as well. Did you ever have any concerns about uh, entering into doing a documentary like this with the likes of Putin? Um, yeah, I mean, my last film was a music documentary about an old rock band. So this one was certainly <laughs> scarier than that one was. Um, but at the end of the day, once you're around Navalny, you very quickly acclimate to the courage and bravery that his team embodies. Um, and I think that his own courage really proliferates through the entire film team. Um, so at the beginning, I understood that there was a risk factor and it was a bit dangerous, but I also understood that the danger probably would not be vested or aimed towards me. But there's always the, the, the possibility of collateral damage or scary things like this. Well, I can, I can confirm that Daniel was very analytical about assessing the danger and he kept asking me on a daily basis, where do you think I rank? He ranked on the kill list. Would it be below you, Crystal? And I, I gave him comfort. I said, before, before they get to you, they'll get to me. So you'll know when to run. This was a real conversation. <laughs> That's right. We actually said that. I, I, I understood that, uh, you know, I wasn't doing the journalistic work. I wasn't doing the investigation. It's a very different job to be filming the journalists than to be the actual journalist. And I took a little bit of solace in that distance. Christo, on the other hand, as we now know, is in a very different position. Uh, just what was it, two or three weeks ago, he had the very unique distinction of being the first foreign national to be added to Russia's most wanted list uh, for charges that are still uh, a mystery. Um, and that's an escalation. And it's obviously very, very scary. So, Christo, you kind of scare me because of your ability to use the dark web to get info. I mean, the sequence in which you are able to get the information on that team of killers is amazing. Talk about that process, buying material and the dark web and all that stuff is just fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, the dark web is a bit of, a bit of an exaggeration here because I don't go to the dark web. I go to the uh, gray web, which is kind of uh, uh, telegram channels. Telegram is a messenger that is super popular in Russia and all of the trades there are happening in broad daylight, even illegal trades. I mean, we're not talking about drugs or or or, or um, uh, hitmen for hire, but generally breached data and personal data is being sold and traded there quite openly. So um, if you know where to look, you will you'll find it. And um, previously, this market was available only to criminals in Russia and also to 
uh, FSB officers, security officers who wanted to simplify their own job by just um, buying data from the black market rather than going and doing the surveillance in person. But since about 2017, we at Bellingcat decided to, well, I, I did, that why don't we put that market to better use and then use it for journalism, for investigative journalism. So the way it would work is important to remember that it's not um, an investigation that started from scratch, the Navalny poisoning investigation. We had previously spent years investigating who manufactures the poisons, the toxins in Russia today, because we investigated previously the Skripal poisoning in the UK, and then the poisoning of a Bulgarian arms dealer. So we kind of knew who in Russia has access to and does R&D, research and development on chemical weapons for boutique use, like for targeted killings. So when we started plotting the algorithm for how to investigate Navalny, we had this idea, probably they would have gone through the same scientists that they've used previously. So we knew their, their phone numbers of these scientists, we got their phone records, I mean, not content, but just like whom they called and received phone calls. And we found out that around the time of the poisoning, these scientists were talking to people from the FSB, from Russia's Domestic Security Service, which was already a huge red flag. And then when we started getting the travel records of those FSB officers with whom they talk, we saw that they flew alongside Alexei Navalny uh, on a, I think it was a total of 66 trips in the last five years. So they literally followed him around and they had gone to this trip in Siberia where he fell into a coma. So from that moment on, it was clear what happened. We just had to prove it. And the ultimate proof actually came from a self confession in the film. <laughs> it was the craziest thing I've seen or experienced. That was insane. You know, when I'm watching this documentary, it kind of reminded me of uh, all the president's men without deep throat, you know, um, and seeing you and Maria during that call that Navalny did calling up all the suspects. What I want to know is what was the conversation with him prior to that? Because he was so cool and calm did he improvise his way through these phone calls or was was he coached? Well, I think at the beginning, his conceit was just to do this as like a, 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 you know, a total prank, you know, just to scare these guys. But the performance on the day of, I mean, Christo, you can speak to it better because you speak the language, but yeah. it's a flawless performance. Well, first of all, no, he wasn't coached. And um, we actually anti-coached him. We tried him to not go into that prank mode because we thought it's not going to work. So the idea was for him to do, just do some perverted version of journalistic confrontation of the topic of your investigation, just to call them and to ask them, why did you try to kill me? And he did that. That was kind of the coached version. And then at one point he says, this is going nowhere. They're going to hang up for the rest of the day. How about I try to pretend I'm their boss? And we said, that's crazy because they would know your voice. They would not fall for that. They would not talk in an open line. He just looked at me, looked at the at the wall of suspects and he said which of these guys do you think is the dumbest and i told him and he made that phone call <laughs> so daniel this is also a story about family yeah uh, alexei's wife uh yulia his two kids what dad is doing is trying to lead a revolution but his family really on board for this completely full unconditional support right well, yeah, I, I really think that Navalny derives a lot of his strength and empowerment from his family. It's really remarkable to see not only his courage, but how his courage echoes through that of his children and, and Yulia, his, his, his wife. This is a family that is so steadfast in their support of their father and husband that it's sort of a force of nature in and of itself. 
And you can only imagine how much more challenging his work would be if his family did not support him, if his family did not believe in the vital necessity that is his mission. Um, and I remember, Krista, you had a conversation with Yulia, didn't you? That was one of the most uh, striking and kind of life-changing conversations for me because um, when Alexei announced that he wants to go back to Russia, which was a shock to all of us, right? Yeah. Um, I had a private talk over a glass of wine with his wife and I said, are you okay with this? And she said, sure. I said, um, explain this to me. I don't get it. And she said, well, if it doesn't go back, he becomes just one of the many talking heads who are like trying to be somebody from outside of their country. But if he really wants to be a politician uh, that is electable in this country, he has to be where his people are, where he his constituents are. And I said, oh, yeah, that's all beautiful. But do you realize that he's going to be jailed? And she said, absolutely. And then I I pushed further. I said, do you realize it's not going to be for a couple of weeks? It may be for months, I said naively. Yeah, she said, it's going to be years. It's going to be years, and we are okay with that. I've never seen such a, such an attitude from any person, let alone their family. And and I think this is what makes him a different person than, than all of us. Yeah, what I marvel about him so much is his sense of humor throughout a lot of this. You know, when he was walking through the village where they were living when he left Russia and she wanted to pick an apple and he was yes, like don't have don't let them film you stealing an apple you know don't get that on on camera people um, are surprised to, to learn that this film's a dark comedy <laughs> <laughs> but, but but so many things like even when they were landing you know he was what they were watching the simpsons were they watching the simpsons yeah, morty. rick and morty, oh, that's rick rick and morty. morty. They were, oh even better yeah. even yeah. better um, you know, yeah. that he watched Rick and Morty as he was falling into a coma as well. So that that's kind of a full loop circle. Yeah, that's right. Then. So the most amazing moment in the movie, I think, for me is when uh, Daniel, I think it's you, say, "What if you go to prison for life, or if you're killed, and what what do you want to say to the Russian people?" And he gives that answer in English, and then you ask for him to do it in in Russian. Describe yeah. sort of that that moment which i think is is really gets me in this film well you know so many people have have talked about that moment as as one that's particularly poignant it ends the film it's one of the last last it's the last thing we see of alexei where i i ask him the question if you are killed if this does happen what message you have for the russian people and i remember it was at the very end of i think the last shooting day when we shot that interview and he was tired and when you have to speak in a language that's not your own native language, it's even more challenging. And so he gave me an answer in English that was sort of lame. He said, don't give up or something canned and, and uninspired and wanting to elicit something more, something a little bit more inspiring. I said, Alexei, say it in Russian. And so he addressed his people, his supporters, and, and he said that something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, but but evil guys, evil dudes are only able to proliferate if good people do nothing. So don't be inactive. Hmm. And the reason why I think that's such an important idea is because he's not just speaking to Russians. He's speaking to citizens all over the world who are pushing back against the tides of authoritarianism. Um, and that, unfortunately, is a conversation that is relevant uh, uh, profoundly today, um, more so now than than in a while. And, and that's something that uh, that the world needs to pay attention to. Is Navalny's words, don't be inactive. Especially at the time of war. Especially yeah. at the time of war. Yeah, I mean, on, on a grander scale, 
you know, this, this warning about the rise of authoritarian governments around the world, that's really the context for the movie. I mean, it is about Navalny and it is about what's happening in Russia right now, but there are multiple situations, you know, whether it's old Erdogan or uh, Bolsonaro or so the rise of authoritarian leadership. Um, I'm, I'm interested from you, Christo. Do you feel as though journalism is doing its job in terms of raising the awareness uh, of, about the rise of authoritarianism? Well, I mean, the only agency, the only institution that is doing anything about it is journalism. That's, uh, I'm afraid uh, I have to say that. But I do feel that there is um, a pervasive sense of moral relativism throughout the journalistic, journalistic class, unfortunately, around the world, where they try to pick... Um, uh, bad actors and less bad actors and they have uh, also many of the people who are in our profession they have their own favorites and sometimes uh or favorite enemies and pet peeves so i know a lot of people who for years have for example been very critical of, of their own country of the united states or britain and that kind of softens their willingness to go after real tyrants like Putin, like like Erdogan, because they're kind of moderating and saying, oh, our guys are not as bad. Remember Trump who said uh, a couple of years ago, well, we also killed people. Well, that, that's kind of the moral relativism that I find completely unacceptable. So I wish that there was more uh, anger and more uh, willingness to go out full mode against dictators by by journalists, but at least they're doing something and many governments are not. You know, when we see what happened with Navalny, I mean, do you see a time where somebody like him <laughs> will be able to make a difference in a place like Russia, in Putin's Russia? Well, I mean, the, we've talked to local pollsters in Russia, and I think they have a better um, view than any of us on this. And they're saying uh, Russians love strong people. And if he survives jail, he's strong. He's like Nelson Mandela of Russia. And if he comes out of jail at the time when everybody has realized how terrible of an idea the war is, and with his anti-war message, he actually has a very high chance of being elected. I mean, even before that, if, if there were free elections in Russia, he would probably get between 30 and 35% of the vote. But if this comes at a time of, of the collapse of the economy and then Russia uh, seeing body bags coming back from from their sons of their sons, then this actually can push it above fifty percent. So I think yes, I'm very hopeful. Yeah, I have I have a dream of making a sequel to the Navalny film, and the sequel I want to make is the story of the first democratic election in Russian history, in which candidate Navalny is able to pitch his program and his policies to the Russian people, who will get to decide uh, their own future in a free and fair election. Um, that seems like a far off dream right now. But one thing that Navalny reminds all of us is that optimism and hope are vital to get through the darkest days. And I think that this is probably the darkest moment imaginable with this horrendous genocidal war being waged and Navalny being in uh, a horrible solitary confinement cell. Um, but, you know, he is a flickering light in a very dark, dark context. And uh, I think he reminds all of us to have hope. And I think that hope is very important. You guys have been all over the world with this movie. Uh, you're going to be at the Academy Awards. Uh, what has this experience been like for you, this sort of whirlwind? I know you've done Q&As across the globe. What's, what's it all been like? Well, the most important part of this film 
and getting this film out into the world is the understanding that Navalny and his plight and his mission are not being forgotten. Navalny's in a very dangerous place right now. This film does not have a happy ending. He's currently languishing in a solitary confinement cell. He's the only uh, prisoner, I believe, in the Russian penal system that is in perpetual solitary confinement. It's a torturous condition. Mm. And so I, I very much frame the mission of this film uh, to, to, to remind the world that he's there and to tell people who don't know his name, who he is and what he's about and introduce the world to him in, in that way. And I think keeping him in the global consciousness has a direct correlation to his own safety and longevity. So that's the mission of the film of, of how I view it. And all of the really wonderful, humbling, uh, and just for me, shocking accolades that have come with this journey, um, only serve to further that mission. Um, and for me, that's very meaningful. And the last thing I'll add is, is experientially one thing that, that I've always, that's always meant a great deal to me is showing this film in Berlin or Copenhagen or Tel Aviv and having young Russian people disillusioned and lost and exiled, um, who fled this horrible, horrible war, who are, uh, heartbroken that they can't see their families and, and that there's all this death and destruction around them. Um, them coming to see the film and and seeing Navalny on the big screen and for the first time in a long time um, having a slight glimmer of hope for the future of their nation and feeling for just a moment proud to be Russian um, and seeing the 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 best qualities in their Russian spirit identified in this Navalny character um, then they approach me after crying and very emotional and for me it's incredibly meaningful. Well, listen, uh, Navalny is the name of the film. It is streaming now on HBO Max. Uh, Daniel Christo, thanks. You, you are keeping him in the world consciousness, which is, you know, a, an amazing accomplishment. And we, we hope the very, very best for him and uh, wish you great success with the film. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks for having us. us. Thank you.